Well, we are continuing 1 Corinthians tonight. We are in chapter 6 this evening. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 6. And uh, so get your Bible and let's uh, read that together. Let's go ahead and stand. And uh... All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning verse 1. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor... Dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again tonight that we can come uh, gather in your name. And Lord, we we just thank you for the fellowship of the saints. We thank you for the opportunity that we have, how we enjoy uh, these precious times. And we can come and corporately lift our voices in praise to you and and, uh, exalt your holy name. Lord, we thank you so much for your precious word. Lord, we uh, know that it is uh, that which provides guidance for this life. And it uh, tells us uh, how we're to live, but it also tells us how we're not to live. It tells us what we're not to do. And, uh, Lord, we don't want to bring shame to your name. We don't want to dishonor Christ in any way. So, Lord, help us to follow the principles of this passage of Scripture as it relates to lawsuits as it relates to um, legal uh, situations, that we might honor you in all things. And Lord, help us to apply these principles to our lives, to the church, as it uh, pleases you. And Lord, we ask you to bless again tonight as we worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you can uh, remember back in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, You'll remember that Paul said we are not to judge those in the world. And now, in chapter 6, he says we're not to go to the world for judgment 
against a brother. This passage not only shows us that the Corinthians were envious and critical of fellow believers, fellow Christians, but that they were even taking advantage of one another to the point of suing each other in pagan courts for the purpose of personal gain. The Greek culture around Corinth and Athens was permeated with lawsuits. It's very much like our society today. The Jews never used the pagan courts, but the Greeks just loved the courts. They were willing to sue just about anybody over just about anything. This was the Gentile way of dealing with conflict. And the Corinthian church had fallen into this worldly practice of suing other people. Even as it turns out, their fellow Christians, they were, some apparently in the Corinthian church were taking other believers to court. And as they had done with so many other things, the Corinthians simply carried the worldly practices that they saw in their society around them. They carried those practices right into the church. And it never occurred to them that Christ has called us to be distinct from the world. Of course, we know that our world today is very enamored with lawsuits. Uh, Suing people is still a very popular thing to do in our country. It's interesting that 80% of all lawyers in the world live in the United States. 15 million civil suits are filed every year in our country. By far, Americans spend more on litigation than any other country in the world. And you can, if you look at the chart, you see it's the United States and then the next country uh, is like this. We spend more than $251 billion annually on lawsuits in our country. Americans spend more on civil litigation than on any other industrialized nation, more than twice what is spent on all new cars. So the next time you buy a new car, think it's much greater for lawsuits than it is for all these new cars. Surely we can relate to what was going on in the church at Corinth. And please understand, I'm not I'm not attacking those in the legal profession, so if you have any attorneys here, please understand that. Uh, I'm simply point out, pointing out that we live in a very similar context today as these Corinthian believers did uh, back then. The Jews of that day always had their own courts. Even under Greek and Roman rule, they always had, of course, the Sanhedrin was like their Supreme Court, but they had their lower courts as well. But the Jews always had their their own courts. Under Roman law, Jews could try virtually every offense in their own courts and render almost any sentence except for, as you know, the death sentence. 
That's why they needed the Romans to enact the death sentence for Jesus Christ. But of course, we know from Jesus' trial that the Sanhedrin was free to imprison and beat him as they pleased, but they required the permission of Rome, represented by Pontius Pilate, in order to put him to death by crucifixion. John MacArthur says, because Christians were considered by the Romans to be a Jewish sect, the Corinthian believers were probably free to settle their disputes among themselves. They could have had their own courts. Possibly because they were not able to get as favorable settlements from their fellow Christians, however, many of them chose to sue each other in the synagogues before Jewish judges or in the pagan public courts. And what we need to understand is that these Corinthian Christians were very fleshly and they were very self-centered. And so they were looking for the best possible outcome for themselves. MacArthur says public litigation was a manifestation of their fleshly attitudes. One more piece of leaven that they had carried over into their new lives in Christ. They had just taken that leaven of worldliness right into the church. So in this chapter, Paul tackles this carnal practice. And through the use of the recurring phrase, do you not know, he seeks to show them three ways in which they are misunderstanding the Christian life. Three ways they're misunderstanding the Christian life. He asks, first of all, do you not know the true rank of Christians? Do you not know the true rank of Christians? The questions that Paul asks here are rhetorical. He already knows the answer. But let's read verses 1 through 6 again. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, Are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? If then you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so? That there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren. But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Paul asks, as if in shock, can it be true that you are actually suing one another in pagan courts? And please understand, it was not that Paul's concern was that they might not get a fair hearing in the public court. That was not what he was concerned about. 
his concern was that they had so little respect for the church's reputation and for the reputation of Christ, and they had so little trust in the authority and the ability of the church to settle its own issues. That was his concern. Surely Christians of all people can settle their own disputes. After all, we are his saints, his holy ones. We are those who are fully enriched in him and not lacking in any spiritual gift, as he said in chapter 1, verses 2 through 7. In essence, Paul is asking, how can you even think of taking your problems outside the family of God. All the resources of truth, wisdom, equity, justice, love, kindness, generosity, and understanding reside with the people of God. We have and know the Word of God and can rightfully apply its principles. Why? would we ever want to turn to pagan unbelievers to settle our conflicts? The real truth of the matter is that Christians who take other Christians to court do so either to get revenge or for personal gain at the expense of a brother or sister in Christ. And either one of those is wrong. Either one of those is sinful. Now, verses 2 and 3 are really mind-boggling to most Christians. I mean, when we read that, uh, I mean, look at it again. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? What? We're going to judge the world? Verse 3, do you not know we will judge angels? Ever thought about that? This is truth about our future that we don't fully comprehend at this point. This is hard for us to understand that role, but the Bible says that is something that is in our future. This revelation from God through the Apostle Paul tells us that although we don't fully understand it right now, this is a part of our future in reigning and ruling with Christ that involves judging the world and even the angels. Do you remember what it says in Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27? You might want to turn there. Let's go ahead and turn to Revelation 2 for just a moment and look at verses 26 and 27. Revelation 2, 26 says this, He who overcomes... And he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. This is talking to the church. These are believers that are being referred to here. We are going to rule and have authority over the nations. We are the overcomers. We are the ones who are going to have authority over the nations and rule them with a rod of iron, according to this passage. 
we're going to have the delegated authority of Christ in the same way that he has the delegated authority of his father, but in some way, in some role, we are going to have that authority. So here is the situation in Corinth. Not only were the Corinthian believers refusing to deal with problems within the walls of the church, as we saw in chapter 5, they should have dealt with that sin. They did not. But now they are parading their greed and their carnality and all their dirty laundry in front of the world by going to the public courts. And as in the case of allowing flagrant sin in their fellowship, the church's testimony in the world is being threatened. It's being destroyed, if you will, by doing this. The world did not see any difference between what everybody else was doing and what the Christians were doing. This was bringing dishonor to Christ and dishonor to the church. I mean, why would they become motivated to become believers? They didn't see any difference between the church and the world. But here's the bottom line. Disputes among Christians should be settled among Christians. That's the principle. And folks, listen, I believe that the poorest equipped believer who seeks the counsel of God's Word and the Holy Spirit is much more competent to settle disagreements between fellow believers than the most highly trained judge who is devoid of divine truth. We have those spiritual resources the world does not have. And more importantly, by settling our own disputes, we give a testimony to the world to our spiritual resources that we have in Christ. And our unity and our harmony and our humility and our love toward one another will be a tremendous testimony in the world. When we go before a public court, the result is always the opposite. It is always the opposite of that. Now, having said that, we also need to recognize that there are some exceptions. Sometimes in our modern society, going to a secular court is unavoidable. There are certain times we cannot avoid it. Now, an example of that might be where a Christian is being divorced by his spouse. That would be an example of that. You can't avoid going to court. Or, in the case of child abuse or neglect, a Christian parent might be forced to seek protection from a backslidden former spouse. Those type of situations might be an exception. And I'm sure there are other cases that I'm not thinking of. Sometimes we just can't avoid ending up in court. But even in those cases where a Christian finds himself unavoidably in court with a fellow believer, his purpose should always be to glorify God 
first and foremost. His purpose should never be personal gain or the taking of some sort of advantage over another person. And we can safely say from this passage of Scripture that the general rule is never to go to court against another believer in a public, secular court. That's the general rule. The general rule for Christians is to settle disputes among believers, either going to other believers, going to the church as a whole, but somehow working out our differences among ourselves. That is the general principle that we see here. But there's a second question that Paul asks. He asks, do you not know the true attitude of Christians? The true attitude of Christians. Look with me again at verses 7 and 8. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why, have, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Christians who take fellow Christians to court lose spiritually even before the case is heard. The fact that they have lawsuits at all is a sign of moral and spiritual defeat, according to Paul. The word for defeat there is, in verse 7, is the word hatima. Uh, it means a legal defeat. It's, it's like your case has already been heard and the ruling has already gone against you. That's what he's saying. You're already defeated as soon as you show up in court. What should be the attitude of a Christian in regard to lawsuits? It should be the attitude that says, I would rather suffer loss myself than to haul my brother into court. It would be far better for me to come out on the short end of the stick financially than to lose spiritually like this. That ought to be our attitude. Now the question is, do you believe that? Do we believe that? Do we really? Would we be willing to suffer financially in order to keep from taking a brother, a fellow Christian, to court? We've got to decide if we really believe that or not. If that's what we're going to practice. Now the word for defrauded there in verse 7 means to rob or despoil. It'd be better to be robbed, Paul says, than to go to court. What he's saying here is that it would be better for you to be robbed yourself than to take your brother into court. Because if you do that, you're going to lose from a spiritual perspective. A Christian's primary concern should not be to protect his material possessions or his rights but to protect his relationship with his Lord and with his fellow believers. That ought to be the higher priority. That has to be priority number one. But there's a third question that Paul asks here. He asks, do you not know the true character of a Christian? 
the true character of a Christian. Look at verses 9 through 11 again. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Paul's purpose here is not to give a list of sins that will indicate someone has lost his salvation. There is no such list. You can't lose your salvation if you're truly a born-again child of God. Rather, he's giving here a catalog of sinners who are typical of the unsaved. These are persons whose lives are totally characterized by such sins and are not saved. Therefore, they are unrighteous and unjustified. And Paul is using this list to emphasize their distinctiveness from the world's. He's using the examples of lawsuits to focus on a much wider spiritual principle, namely that Christians are no longer a part of the world system, allowing the flesh to dominate can make us sometimes look like we are, but we are no longer, according to Scripture, a part of that world system. But let's go through this list briefly, and we need to understand this list here in verses 9 and 10 is not exhaustive. It is given as a representation of the types of sins that have always characterized ungodly societies. But his point is that these are things that should never characterize true believers in Christ. And we won't spend a lot of time on these, but let's at least walk through this list. First, he mentions fornicators. This is talking about those who are characterized by sexual immorality in general. This would apply specifically to unmarried people, single people. This is sexual sin outside the bonds of marriage, and it is unconditionally condemned in Scripture. Then he mentions idolaters, those who worship any false god or become involved in any false religious system. And of course, this has never been as bad as it is in our day and time. There are many who have been um, deceived and have fallen into this uh, trap of idolatry. It seems that they're uh, you know, there's just so much out there that is so bizarre. Uh, and, and it seems that there is no belief that is too bizarre or any claim that is so fantastic or any practice that is so strange that people even question its legitimacy. Everything just seems to be okay with everybody. John MacArthur has said, I think someone could walk out today in a bathrobe and say he is Moses and he would have a 
great following immediately. We're so gullible. But it's not just religion. People have all kinds of idols today, and we could rattle these off. This is essentially worshiping anything other than the one true God. Then he lists adulterers. And this, of course, would be married people who indulge in sexual relations outside of marriage. And as you know, affairs have become very common, even fashionable in our day and time. But the Word of God clearly condemns this as sin. The next two go together, effeminate and homosexuals. This refers to those who exchange and corrupt the normal male-female roles and relationships. This would include such things as transvestism, sex changes, and other gender perversions. And it doesn't matter what people say today. It doesn't matter what's politically correct. The Bible's very clear on this. The Bible clearly condemns this. Deuteronomy 22.5 says, A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Can you get any clearer than that? Why is that not clear enough? When are we going to learn? Our world is just going the way they want to go, but it's totally opposite of what God's Word declares. And it's amazing how many times God says don't, and we say, gee, I wonder if God means don't. God's Word is clear on these kinds of things. But Christians today question whether it's sin or not. I mean, Christians of all, we ought to be clear on this, even if the world is not. And we expect the world to question these kinds of things, and especially those who are you know, espousing a gender revolution. But as Christians, we should never have to wonder what God thinks of it. And understand the Bible is just as clear on the subject of homosexuality. It is clearly condemned in Scripture. Sodom and Gomorrah were clearly destroyed because of the sin of homosexuality. Romans 1 makes it absolutely clear that it is sinful and condemned by God. And of course, by Paul's day, homosexuality had become rampant in Greece and Rome. In his commentary on this passage, William Barclay reports that Socrates was a homosexual and Plato probably was as well. Uh, Plato's Symposium on Love is a treatise glorifying homosexuality. And the Roman Empire was filled with homosexual sin. In fact, it is likely that 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were homosexuals. John MacArthur writes, Confusion of sex roles, like adultery, is particularly evil because it attacks the family. It corrupts the biblical plan for the family, including the standards for authority and submission within the family, and thus retards the passing of righteousness from one generation to the next. This is why it's so serious. 
He says, the most ungodly societies of history have been plagued by sex role perversions, no doubt because Satan is so intent on destroying the family. And he concludes, churches who, in the name of love, defend homosexuality and condone homosexual ministers, marriages, and congregations are not only perverting God's standards of morality, but also encouraging their members in sin. These are serious issues. Well, I could spend a whole lot more time on that, but let's move on. The next two should also be taken together, thieves and covetous. This constitutes the basic sin of greed. The covetous person desires that which belongs to someone else, while the thief actually takes it. But the basic root of here is the sin of greed and selfishness. And the problem with this sin is that it is never satisfied. The greedy person always wants more. And in our day and time, it's difficult to find anyone, even a Christian, who is content with what he has. Even the corruption of our political system in America is driven by this sinful desire to want more. But while greed and selfishness is characteristic of our world, we are to be different in this regard. We are not to be covetous. We are not to be thieves. Then he mentions drunkards. Now, that's probably self-explanatory. It would rightly apply to any kind of substance abuse. We know that we have an opioid crisis in our country today as people are abusing prescription drugs. And, of course, alcoholism has been a serious problem for many, many years. And again, this is characteristic of the world, but it is not to characterize genuine believers in Christ. And then he mentions revilers. These are those who destroy people with their tongue. These are those who libel people and destroy their reputations with false accusations. And my goodness, haven't we heard a lot about that in recent times? Fake news, the Trump dossier, tabloid-type reporting, this has just become so commonplace in our world today. People falsely accusing, people destroying other people's reputations with libel. This would also include gossip on a personal level. It would include anyone who would, would go around talking about other people, and they are usually not very concerned if what they are communicating is true or not. They don't worry about checking it out. They just heard it, so they're going to spread it to others. Then he mentions swindlers. These are those who steal indirectly. This would include extortioners, embezzlers, con artists, promoters of defective merchandise and services, false advertisers, and many other types of deceptive manipulation for the sake of gain. 
there were all kinds of swindlers in Paul's day, as there still are, of course, in our day and time. But notice what he says about this list. He says that people who are characterized by any of these will not inherit the kingdom of God. But he goes on to observe, such were some of you. You used to be this way. This is clearly past tense here. No longer does this apply to you. And though many of these Corinthian Christians had once been characterized by some of these things, it was no longer the case with them. In fact, we would have to say that every Christian is an ex-sinner in the sense of being characterized by a life of sin. All but there is that conjunction but there in verse 11. This is the strongest Greek participle that was available to Paul. In the strongest terms that he could find, he painted the distinction, but things are different now. Things are different now. And he lists three aspects of the radical change that the gospel makes in the life of every believer. We'll go through these very quickly. First, he says, we are washed We are washed. This is a clear reference to the spiritual washing of regeneration. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart of full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is the washing of spiritual regeneration. Every genuine believer has been washed. Genuine believers have been cleansed from the filthiness of sin and corruption. But then he goes on to say we are sanctified. Sanctified. He says that the Corinthian believers would be uh, sanctified, but this would be true of all believers, not just these Corinthian believers. All believers are sanctified. This speaks of new behavior, new behavior. The sanctified literally means to be made holy inwardly and to be able by the Spirit's power to live a righteous life outwardly. So what he's talking about. Of course, the Bible explains that before a person is spiritually regenerated, he has no holy nature and no capacity to live a holy life. He has no ability to walk in righteousness. But all that changes when he comes to faith in Christ. At spiritual regeneration, we receive an entirely new nature that enables us then to live a life that is pleasing to God. And the word sanctification, while sometimes used as a synonym for justification, usually is spoken of in the sense of a progressive process of growing in righteousness and Christ-likeness. So here Paul is 
likely emphasizing that. And that is why he goes on then and adds the word justified. Not only are you sanctified, you're also justified. He's making a distinction between those two. So thirdly, he says we are justified. This has to do with our standing before God. We are declared justified the moment that we put our full faith in Christ alone to save us. We're made just as if I'd never sinned. We are declared completely sinless in the eyes of God by faith. So Paul is using these terms here to paint the distinction between the Corinthian believers and those in the world. They're no longer practicing these kinds of things. They're no longer allowing these sinful elements to dominate and characterize their lives. And therefore, they should not allow these things then to come into the church. Taking one another another to court should be included in this. And this is his main point. And what we're seeing in this first epistle to the Corinthians is that Paul is beginning to root out the worldliness of this carnal church. He's dealing with these sinful issues one at a time. And he has many more left to deal with. But this one was something that really should have been a no-brainer to them. They shouldn't even have had to have had instruction on this. They should have known that this was clearly something they should not be involved with. This should have been as clear to them as the sin of incest in chapter 5. And it should be as clear today to us as well. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us to be courageous believers in a world that's going the opposite direction from what your word declares. And, Lord, it takes that kind of courage, and yet, Lord, we can do that because we live on the basis of your divinely revealed truth. Help us to do that this week, and we ask you in Christ's name. Amen.